Bienvenidos to the Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, we have an awesome conversation with Alejandro Serrano Mena. He works on 47 Degrees and is a published author on two books about Haskell. Throughout this episode, we talk about many interesting features behind functional programming, such as ADTs, pattern matching, impredictivity, monads, effects, hacking the GHC, and how all of this comes together to grab industry attention to adapt functional programming features over the past decade. If any of this sounds remotely interesting to you, lean back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Let's get into it! Welcome, welcome to One More Podcast. Today with me, I have the guest Alejandro Serrano Mena. Thank you so much for joining me today, man. I'm happy to be here. So Alejandro, he has done his PhD on error reporting in Haskell at Utrecht. He used to work as a professor there as well, but nowadays he's working on the 47 degrees. So we, I think we have a lot to talk about on Haskell, on his current work, and, and all of those cool stuff. But how about we start talking about, you know, let's let's talk about basics of functional programming. Why do you think functional programming is cool? What are, what are the things that it brings to the table for a software developer? So I would say now, nowadays there are like two things that you can say about functional programming. It's what has already come and what I think it's going to come. So, so I remember like, like uh, 10, 15 years ago when I was starting doing functional programming, uh, people didn't even know what the map was. You know, like it's the very basic thing you used to learn when you're doing functional programming, you shouldn't iterate, you should use map to do your things. And and I remember I, I found this like to be much nicer. This is when, when I was uh, when I was uh, studying computer science. And I remember, you know, this was I had this this uh, uh, group of, of, of friends which we like to look at crazy languages. That was our thing. So we went and and go and learn Clojure and Haskell and Prolog and everything around there just just to know what was out there because it seemed to us that uh, the world couldn't end at C and Java, which is what they were teaching us. Uh, but nowadays, I mean, any any language nowadays has a map. I mean, Java has map. Uh, any any new programming language, Kotlin, uh, Swift, whatever you want already has this thing. So I think this part, the part of using functions as, as arguments, but it's like the core thing. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's there. It's, it's, uh, it's now something people know. And I think it really shows that this was uh, the right kind of way to look at those things because people, because people have found that, oh, now, now I can use the same idea and suddenly, you know, you have all these streaming libraries which are using essentially the same concepts uh, and they can get, you know, they can leverage a lot of, a lot of uh, like performance out of this kind of more declarative way to do stuff. And then as I was saying, there is like the second thing, which I think it's going to come, which is uh, the, the approach uh, many of us in the functional programming community have towards types. So more like the Haskell way of looking at types, this idea of having a strong types uh, and of modeling things kind of using algebraic data types, so to say. So uh, you can see that some of them is coming to like a Scala, for example, Scala 3 has it and, and Swift calls it uh, enum class or something like this, but they are essentially algebraic data types. So I think the next thing that we are going to, bring from this kind of more uh, Haskellish or maybe more, it's going to be that thing, this the way in which we model data and, and that thing. And I, I think that that brings a lot of nice things to the table. I mean, it, it brings immutability, which is a good thing. Uh, it helps you not having side effects, which is something which people recognize it's good, even if they don't do functional programming. Uh, you know, and, and, and at the end, it, it brings like, well, the goal was always to have this more declarative approach to things. So I, 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 this is the thing I expect in that comes. And, and then, you know, uh, 
it's, it's this kind of uh, good and bad thing. We, we would have won. Like, FP is already here. Uh, and you can do it everywhere. So, so that's you know that's that's a nice thing. But it's it's no longer this small thing where we are doing in a, in a corner. Which in some, somehow it's also cool and underground. Yeah, no, yeah, I definitely I definitely agree. For example, you were talking about algebraic data types and how it's it's starting to you're starting to see them in more regular languages like Rust as well. Also, yeah. is also using ADTs and. I don't know. I just think the the idea of pattern matching, pattern matching comes because you have algebraic data types, right? It just yeah. means that you can you can ex exactly look at your data and you know exactly what what is in there and how things are going to behave and how are things typed, right? And then you can actually one one very big and strong thing about about pattern matching is that it's usually the case that it's exhaustive, right? It's not, it's not really the case for, for Haskell. Haskell allows you to have partial pattern match, which I don't know if I like it that much. But for example, OCaml. I you, don't. You have... I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's really funny because I, uh, I'm i actually TAing a course this semester and we're, we're using Haskell. I, I think I haven't used Haskell for like five years now or something like that. And, and I've been just working with OCaml. And coming back to Haskell, I have... There, it's it's so different, right? It's so different from the other languages, from from OCaml, for example. Like they they're very different from each other. Yeah, I, I to, to be honest, I I haven't used OCaml other than you know to know a bit about it, but but yeah, I I think that that uh, what you're saying, like this kind of pattern matching approach to stuff, just gives you another way to to. To write your your program, which main it's not actually related to function. It's like an, an orthogonal thing, but but it's uh, you know I'm I'm nowadays used to think, and and that's actually sometimes when I try to learn something new that that goes in you know in the middle because it, for me it's okay. I have a piece of data. What do I do? I inspect it with a match. How do I do match yeah. in this language? What do you mean? You don't have a match? What, what do you mean? What do you mean? How do I how, how do I do list without like? <laughs> Nail and cons. That's that's how you do this. Exactly. Ah, okay. Okay. You have. Okay. At least you have maps. Okay. 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 Java. I can somewhere. work. With you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we can work with maps. That's good. And with maps come, come folds as well. And folds is just is just a way for you to iterate over your data, right? Yeah. I, I actually I I since I'm here in this public forum, I, I have a confession to do is that I, I I'm really bad at doing folds. Really. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly bad. <laughs> I tend to write so when I write things and people are are usually uh, you know I have I have uh, several colleagues which which were uh, getting more into Haskell or something and and they thought okay it's it's all maps and folds here and then they see me writing a lot of recursive functions which I know I mean I know it's exactly that maybe it's fold. not the right thing but I'm I'm really bad at folding especially when when I have like uh, things where I need maybe to to fold over something and accumulate something. And I know this should be a scan, but at the end, I end up writing the... The, the recursion. The recursion. With the, yeah, my idea is always I will just refactor it, but if, if it's working, why would I change it? So <laughs> I, I end up doing a lot of... a lot of Like my style of writing has this actually a lot of more re recursive functions than, than you will see in other people like. I really have a lot of if if you for example look at the at the GHC compiler they sometimes have this that they have a a go recursive they they have a recursive function which is local and they always call it go and then yeah, yeah, at the yeah, end of the yeah, function yeah. is call go with the initial parameters that's how I write code most of the time wouldn't you say that's more like more con continuation passing style kind of thing well, I don't think it's continuation, but so something which I think it's nice about this Go pattern is that sometimes you, you, you usually, when you this, do this kind of recursion, you usually have like parameters which don't change. And then because it's a local function, you don't have to pass them explicitly, which is nice. Otherwise you end up with very big. Uh, so it really, like for me, it really shows what, what thing you are doing the recursion over. And I think that that is quite clear. But yeah, that would be the kind of same clarity you would get if you use map of four, but you are also very explicit on what you are recurring over. So 
That's really cool. Yeah, no, yeah, that's 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 a good a good thing. But you were also mentioning about strong static typing. Why do you think that's that's so good? What does strong static typing buys you in the real world? Oh, I I act. So how strong it is? I don't know. That that's a question. I have I have also my my opinions. But I think there is there is, uh, like, um. Okay, let, let me see how I could, can I how can I phrase it. So so there are many things which the compiler can check for us, and and I think being able to leverage this, even if it's just uh you know this kind of uh very stupid things at the beginning is like is this an int or is this a person? Like being able to to uh, keep this apart is is useful. So you so I think it's why should you stop there? There is all this example where you can say, oh, I can give different types to IDs from this table from IDs from this other table, and then the compiler will check for me that that uh, well that. I'm not mixing them up, and and that's a good thing because well, this is a a problem which may end up biting you later, which you are just not having because all of this. Uh, and the same goes, for example, with having uh like an either type when you have a, when you can uh, have an error in your function. Well, you just like do the the usual unchecked exception root at at any point you may have an error, but. If you know that you ha may have an error here and you are forced by the compiler to handle this because this exhaustive pattern matching we were talking about before, this to me gives a lot of, you know, it's 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 not that I don't think you have to put a lot of effort. So you don't you don't necessarily need to go the whole GADT dependent types route, but there is a lot of things which with many simple things on how you build your domain. You know that you're that you won't make a stupid mistake, which for me are the number one uh, weird thing happening in in your in your software. And what what I think it's is the worst kind of bugs to to try to fix. Like uh, you know, just spend a lot of time trying to figure out why something is wrong, and it turns out that you were passing the group ID where you were expecting a person ID because whatever, yeah. and and uh, <laughs> because you were doing Haskell and they are called A and B because we cannot use variables longer than two characters. So, uh, so, <laughs> so you know, you, you end up uh, missing the map. So, so maybe the, the strong typing in Haskell is just a, it's just our way to be able to have small variable names, you know, so yeah, we cannot yeah. mix the map because of the strong right. types. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like it's it's just an abstract type, but it must match, right? Like if yeah. if it's this A here, it must be this A over there as well. It doesn't matter what A we're talking about. So that's fine. That's fine. Right. Yeah. So it's it's I mean, I feel like this is one of these uh arguments where it's very easy to go into extremes, like like to say, Oh, but if you do the full, you know, as I was saying, dependent types thing, it's great, but but then maybe your software is not maintainable, people have to learn about this, but it's like, no, you don't even have to go there. You know, just stay on the place where, where we are fine, just normal types, new types to differentiate those things. This already gives you a lot of things. And again, people is copying this. I mean, like value classes in 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 uh, in Java, they are coming, or, or I don't know how they are calling it, which are just wrappers for the compiler, but not for the actual runtime. These are these are new types. I mean, whatever you want to call them, it's this idea of I just want to wrap something to be able to uh, to have different types. So I don't mix the the map. Uh -huh, but uh -huh. once you are in the machine, you know, use your fast integers because uh, you know that's only for compile time. I don't want to create like a whole pointer or whatever right. at, at runtime. Just make sure that there there are different types as when yeah. we're typing things. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a very powerful approach. I I, I agree with you. So yeah, static, static strong static typing is is really nice because of that. Um, it it brings the failure to to early, right? Like you won't even be able to compile the code because something was a little off over there. And if you couldn't match even that, how how are you gonna how can you make sure that your program is gonna run as well? And one thing that that you were that you were thinking that I think we um, one thing that when you were talking that we, we didn't mention is also with the power of ADTs, we we lose 
the no pointer error reference, right? Like the one million dollar bug on your like that. It's a huge problem. The no pointer reference, it's just everywhere and it's just so annoying. You have to check for your pointers everywhere. And with ADTs, you, you get rid of that exactly because you have to make sure that all, all your data is is being treated properly. As you're saying, the errors are being handledly, handled properly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see like, uh, if you look at, for example, at Kotlin, uh, they actually have a very kind of uh, interesting design there. Uh, so they have a nullable type. So you, your type can be nullable, but it's actually it's actually your old pointer, your old thing, which can be null or not, but track in the type system. So so if you interface with Java, for example, and, and your Java method says, I'm returning a string, from the Kotlin sides, you actually are having a nullable of a string because it might be null. And then because they are adding this kind of uh, additional layer of type checking, you know, you are forced to handle this. So so you don't even have to add ADTs. I think it's it is actually a place where where you can see that adding a type system can solve you a, a real problem, which is null pointers are a real problem. So we are going to add types which tracks whether your things are nullable or not. And, and well, you know, Guaranteed they don't even have to introduce an additional type or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Just make sure that you're going to treat them, right? Like yeah. if this is nullable, you you must check if it's new or not and do something yeah. about it, right? Like the, don't don't throw me silent errors. Don't don't break me on runtime. That's that's a big the, the big thing about types, right? Don't break on me on runtime. <laughs> So I heard that you also did some hacking on, on the GHC. Yeah, that was... Uh, so uh, when I was uh, working towards my PhD, I uh, actually was working on two things. So, so my, my main goal of, of, of my research back then was to improve the error messages when you have... Uh, you know, you, you have a library and, and then the problem with with Haskell and in general with powerful type system is that okay you are leveraging all this incredible power of your types to write a library to know that everything is enforced but when people use your library uh then error messages tend to be big and scary and and actually if, if uh, uh i i hadn't tested this so much in practice before moving to industry, but actually uh, with, a, with a colleague of mine, we wrote a library. It's called it's called Muse for microservices in Haskell, and we were using this. This we had exactly this problem. We had strong types, very strong types, uh, but then when people were trying to use our library, they were and they made a mistake, which eventually will will come. Uh, the messages were impossible to understand. So, so the goal of my research was, okay, how can we somehow introduce hooks on the compiler so that when you are writing your, your library, you say, oh, right, uh, when this thing is failing, uh, please show this other message, which might be, you know, it, it explains what's happening here. I don't know. My, 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 my uh, usual example was if you use, for example, uh, the persistent library in Haskell, which is a database library, it uses a strong types for the kind of things that we were saying before to have an identifier or something like this. But if you use it, suddenly you might get, oh, uh, your type blah, blah, blah is not an, is not an instance of uh, key of, and you have a very big type. And what that means is essentially, oh, sorry, you are using a key from another table. And we know, and if you know the library, you know that what this means. And that's what, so why can't we make the compiler actually say this error? You know, like you are selecting something of table group, but you are giving me a key of type person. We, we, that, that was my goal to be able to have this thing. So that, that's, that's, uh, I started hacking back then on this. I wrote a couple of, of prototypes. Uh, and then I tried to do it in the compiler, uh, but actually at some point I derailed and I started working on impredicative types, uh, which, uh, so it, it's, uh, and, and is, that's how I, I did my, my, I did most of my hacking on that. So, so, but I, so, so if, if you know, I, I don't know whether 
people is familiar with this thing called type error in GHC. It's essentially a way to say, for example, if you have an instance uh, and this instance shouldn't exist, for example, like, oh, uh, your your uh, functions shouldn't be EQ because you cannot compare them. Instead of not having the instance, you can write an instance which says type error. And then the, the compiler, when it tries to get this instance, will show the type error. Like, so you can some, some, somehow introduce a bit of this functionality I was mentioning. So I was trying to extend this to be able to say more things. So what happens if two types do not match? What happens if uh, you cannot find an instance of this? So trying to do right. these things. Uh, uh, I didn't get that far. And actually, uh, yeah, at some point it turned out not to be a great match to uh, for GHC because of how, uh, you know, how... GHC has this kind of type checking, which is non-deterministic. And what I was doing really required uh, a deterministic way to, to look at, at, your, at your program, because otherwise you couldn't know when things will fire. Uh, so it turned out not to be a great match because of these two things. So uh, this, this was just discarded. It's in some branch Wait. over there. Uh, so... Is it the whole type checking that is non-deterministic, or is it the lookup for type type classes instances? No, so so if uh, uh, roughly the the type checker in GHC works on on a on a uh, high level, it goes through your program, and when okay, it, it parses it and then resolves every identifier. But if everything it's resolved, then what it does it's uh, generate constraints so it, it it says okay because you are using this uh, this type should be equal to this type and because this is calling this function this type should be equal to int and then there is a second phase which is the the time where these constraints are sort of solved so you could imagine like you have a big system of equations and then there is something which solves this thing, and 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 the order in which this 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 second thing works is non-deterministic. It's it uh, because there are, it's you know uh, Im imagine for example you have uh, you are trying to resolve an instance, and your instance says that you need to for this instance to hold you need the instance for these other two type classes. So there is no guarantee that, that GHC will look up the first one first and the second one first. Hmm. And actually it happens that that sometimes the constraints are delayed because you don't have enough information to solve them yet. And then at some later point, when you have enough information, then it's then this thing is, is taken out from the back of unsolved constraints. And all this process, I mean, of course, there is an algorithm, but you cannot... It is essentially non-deterministic. You don't know at which order all these things will happen, and and that was a bit against of what I was doing because because what else? I said I had to be, for example, sure that there was no point in which this thing will later be solved. How do I know this if it's non-deterministic? Do I wait until the end? It it it, it didn't work Line so up well. properly. Yeah. 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 But then you started working on in predictive types. You said? In predictive types, yeah. This was like. What is uh, so uh, the, the idea is more or less uh, this thing. So so um, so in 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 Haskell and in, in many of these type system, we have this polymorph. We have polymorphic types. You know, like you can say that uh, identity function has type for all a h way, right? Yep. Uh, but this is always at the layer of of it's, it's top is like top level. You have for all of some things and then your type. So that's that's what we call a rank one polymorphic type. But you can you can also think about nesting things. So you could say, oh, this is a for example, imagine you want to have uh, a function which operates both on an integer and a boolean and then return whatever. You know, you would need a function which has type for all a to uh, int, for example, but this this for all is now part of the argument type. So it's like the for all is inside. You need to give a polymorphic function to, as an argument. So it's not that you don't. It's no longer rank one because your your for all is hidden inside 
uh, one thing. And, and there are some uses of this. Uh, I don't know. There's some generic programming patterns you want to do with this. Or, for example, uh, the most practical use I know is that uh, if you look at the lens library in Haskell, actually the type for a lens is one of these types with a for all inside. So when you combine two lenses, even you don't see it, the type lens SA is actually for all blah, 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 to for all blah, blah, blah. So it's actually using uh, what it's called rank end types. Um, so now, if so, that's that's like rank and type. But you can go one step farther, which is uh, you want to be able to use for alls everywhere, like in a list of for all whatever. And that's that's the last step. That's that's uh, in predicative type. So so uh, being more formal in predicative means that when you have a type variable, you can instantiate that type variable with a for all type. So for example, if you have like the type of head is for all A, list of A to A. So an impredicative instantiation means that, for example, I'm choosing this A to be yet another for all type. So you have you can use it on a list of for all B, B to B, and will give you as a result a for all B, B to B. So you can replace a type with yet a big for all. And that's, that's what impredicative type is. Uh, but there is there is a problem uh, when you have impredicative types, and that's the problem. So, uh, so I started doing this because uh, in order to do my research on on these error messages, uh, for example, the type of a construct of, a, of like a JDT and some of those things involve this kind of type. So I wanted to formalize them to be able to say how, you know, it, I was doing a PT, so everything had to be very formal about, like, I am approaching this in this way. So I was formalizing this. And then uh, if you see uh, the, the the flag in predicative types in, in GHC, it was always kind of, oh, don't use it. We, you know, we don't warranty that this will keep working. That was because in predicative type didn't have, like, a, a clear specification on uh, about how they were working and so on. It, it was actually like, oh yeah, you can do this, but because of this non-determinism I was mentioning before, it could be that in the next version of GHC in which constraints were solved in a different order, you could no longer use your thing in predicativity because it couldn't find it or whatever. Uh, so I I ended up writing a, an email to Simon Payton Jones, you know, like, I was I was young and and full of full of dreams and whatever, <laughs> and, and and to my surprise, like three three four months later, like I had already like forgotten, like I had written this mail. I get uh, a mail from him saying, "Oh, would you and your supervisor like to uh, come to visit me in Cambridge?" And it's like, yes, yeah, like <laughs> yes, I, right. Uh, yeah. And it was even better because Microsoft Research was was paying for the trip and all of that. It's like, oh my uh, god, yeah. I mean, it's it's also like I'm in the Netherlands and Cambridge right. uh, is in close. the UK, so it was it was pretty yeah. pretty nearby. But and 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 we started uh, working on this problem, and 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 at the end, what we end up is with a solution to the following problem. The problem with impredicative types is that sometimes. It's hard to choose whether you want to like imagine, for example, I have this this uh, this thing about the for all I was mentioning. Uh, sometimes it's hard to say. I, I'm imagine at the end of the day you want to use something with type int to int, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Am I? Am, what am I gonna do if I have a head of a list? Am I going to replace my type in head with for all a a to a to get then? the first element, which is of type for all A, A to A, and then turn this for all into an int to int. That's one possibility. The other one right. is that I directly use int to int in the type of head. This And, and they both, they choose two possibilities to give me a way to get at the end the function I want. So this is an ambiguity. And this is the heart, I would say the heart of the problem here within predicative types that, that uh, whereas with... Uh, Haskell 98, Hindley, Milner-like uh, type system, you have one choice 
and that's what is so great about it that we have this principal types property and everything is has, has one choice to do. Here within predicative types, this pro this this breaks, uh, and this is not the first time that that this happens. Like GADTs, for example, also break this property. So they had to they they had this this uh, very big paper called Outsiding, where they explain the choices they make to make to you know to no longer have this ambiguity and why those are the the, the good choices. So we we did something like that, and we came up with a with an algorithm. We call it Quick Look. In predicativity, because the the whole idea is that is that sometimes by having a quick look at your types, you can decide. Like for example, if I have if I have head, if I, I was saying I, I have head, and I don't want, I don't know what to do. But right, if you are giving me a list of into ints, I no longer have a choice. There is only one possibility. I need to choose to instantiate my a with this type. So the whole, I mean, it's a beautiful paper, but the whole idea is sometimes you don't have a choice. So let's just leverage this choice. If we have a choice, and we, you know, we ended up having a theorem and a nice proof about when you don't have a choice and so on. And then when, when we don't know what to do, we just go back and say, I'm sorry, uh, I don't know what to do. You tell me the type or, <laughs> or you know, you right. either tell I mean, me the yeah. type or, or uh, you know, and what most of I the do? time, there, to our surprise, this this uh, kind of naive thing was enough to handle every possible example we had. Like every example where this failed, if you scratch the surface enough, there was actually an ambiguity. You may not have seen it beforehand, but there was actually an ambiguity there. So it seems that our algorithm worked well enough in practice, and that's why it, it made into GHC9. So I didn't write any, like all, I'm certainly that maybe one line of my original code uh, still survives <laughs> there because uh, Simon rewrote it uh, and, and had to actually handle many cases that we, uh, that were not in the paper, but you know, you, in GHC you have all these other extensions, things uh, need to work with, uh, so he just changed everything so many times that I'm, as I say, I'm pretty sure there is like one or two lines uh, from what <laughs> I wrote back then. Uh, but now I learned a lot about GHC, so that's good. Yeah, that's that's super nice. I don't know anything about about the GHC. Is it? Um, how can I give us a, a, a brief idea of how big the GHC is or how hard oh, it is it for? For a, a starter, a beginner to, to start hacking on the GHC. So, so the the first thing is that GHC it's well it's 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 yes huge. It's incredibly huge. Uh, actually, has very long files. Like files are uh, uh, yeah often like thousands of lines of code. It's it's but it's a pretty readable code. Um, I don't actually know a lot of the whole GHC, because the whole, like, if you think of a compiler, it really has a lot of things. Like, the you have the parsing stage and the resolution stage and the part with deals with uh, figuring out where things are. So I was only concerning myself to the type checker, which is like a, it's a big piece, but it's, it's you know, it's in, in one, in one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in, a, in, in, it used to be that the files were called TC blah blah blah, and you knew this was about the type checker. Now I think they they changed this to actually having to be in folders. So I guess there would be in some type checker folder. But then, like like if you, I don't know, you can spend uh, your entire time with only one of these phases. So you have the type checker, and then you have the thing which optimizes the code, and it and and it turns it into this other thing called core, which is like a core language, which is also type inside the compiler. And optimizations happen there too. So, so there are so many layers uh, that I don't know. For me, it was it was a bit hard. So, so 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 first, I had to just have faith that the rest work and just concern myself to the very very little that I that I had. Uh, so the nice thing is because the type checker is actually a place where a lot of people do research. It was very well commented. So uh, the GHC team has this very nice idea of having notes in the code. So they are like super big comments, but uh, they are written, you know, like actually 
they sometimes even have examples and they explain you the algorithm or whatever when it's hard. So sometimes you have something weird here and, and you find a C note there and then you go and find the note. Uh, so and 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 because this is also used by many people, there was a lot of there are a lot of there is a lot of options in the compiler to actually trace what is happening. So you can do something called uh, D dump TC trace, like dump type checker trace. And then you essentially have a trace of everything you want to do. And and there is a lot of uh, good integrated ways to actually include more things on in the trace. So, you know, I could just do my stuff and add my own traces and that would help me a lot. Uh, of course, as this program grew bigger, then uh, this was harder to to. To, but but as for a small example, you can, you could very easily like dump your program with all the constraints and dump your program uh, with the final result and when things failed and something like this. So so this was very. But yeah, I would I would so so if somebody wants to look at this, I would actually suggest to not try to look at GHC as a big thing because it's really really big. But just try to figure out what is the part I need to look at. And, and because it's kind of very well uh, engineered, you can really concern yourself to, oh, I want to, you know, bring something new to the optimized rules. Well, you can you go to the file which does the optimized rules and understand this. And and it's usually very well self-contained. So, so but it... yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that, that answers my question. That's, that's nice. But yeah, that's the thing about, about starting to work on any, you know, like used, software, like any actual software, it's, it takes time for you to get used to what's going on and understanding how, you know, like the environment around this function is working. And it's just, I, I, I always say that the first month of, of work of like getting accustomed to the code base is just always so painful <laughs> because of that. Yeah, like yeah. Everything feels so lost and it's so big in there. Of course, GHC would, is, is going to be that, but so much worse it's, it must be yeah. so big things there i mean i, I would say if, if you have is it like usually if you have like your a specific use case yeah then, then i think it's easier because you much can easier. try to dig yep. there and then i don't know for some people i think it works better to go like from a generic general point of view but for me it works also in general in software like to try to dig and see what my problem is happening and then try to figure out what's around it like the dependencies from the code more than the other way around if you try to understand GHC as a whole it's so big it doesn't fit <laughs> yeah. in anybody's brain uh i mean maybe sheldon cooper's brain but uh but that's certainly not uh not mine yeah 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 for sure for sure but yeah talking about haskell the other amazing thing that haskell has brought to the table was monads right it was it was first created there, if I'm not mistaken. Um, maybe I'm I'm seeing a, a major, but Monad's... I think I think so. I guess it was. I, I mean, Monad is this idea, which is but 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 it was brought. I think I think the main thing which which uh, Haskell brings to the table or brought to the table was like, oh, let's actually make Monad our core thing and and build do notation in the language. I think that that says. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's not only about bringing the idea of Monad, but actually thinking it's so important that we are going to build syntactic sugar uh, upon it. I mean, like Haskell has almost zero syntactic sugar, if you think about it. It's all functions and pattern matching, but it has yeah. do notation, which True. is kind of uh, interesting that they, they made this choice. So why why would why do you think Monad is so important to Haskell? Why, why do you think they made this whole idea of program with do notation around Monad? What's so nice about it? Well, I think, well, first of all, one thing that, that Haskell requires is it's monads for IO, which is like very specific for the language. So mm -hmm. actually when, when I was uh, teaching uh, functional programming uh, as a lecturer, I, I often sort of introduce uh, students to this impure part of Haskell with do notation and never told them it was about monad. It was just about <laughs> that's how you print things. And it makes sense. In, right. Actually, if you think about it, it makes sense because if Haskell says that pure and impure is so important, well, what, how, how to make the distinction better than by actually introducing two different 
syntaxes for these things. Yeah, so people people sense. went on with the lie for for a month or so <laughs> until, until I told them this is actually about monads. Uh, so so that like for the I mean I actually mean like like for the midterm they thought like do notation was for IO and then they discovered the truth. But uh, all, <laughs> apart from that, uh, I, th- I think like. I'm, it's one of those things which uh, I think it's just an abstraction which works pretty well uh, in in lots of cases. Like I, I I cannot really say why, but but you know the fact that if you want to do validation, that's a monad, and the fact that if you want to do things with lists, that's a monad, and the fact that if you do something, you know, like a synchronous programming, your async thing is also a monad. Uh, it's just I don't know. It's 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 like uh, no things. Wh- fall, why is, why right? is it? Just... I'm I'm I I don't know. It's it's about sequence. It's, it's maybe yes. how human how we work. But for me, the the I mean, the whole the, the the whole thing about using monads for me at least when I do Haskell, when I do Scala or things like this, where you can do this is that is it, you know you can just build this library. The fact that control.monad has I don't know how many 20 functions which work over any monad, and then you have control.monad.extra, which has other 20 of them. It's just so great because it means that you don't have to repeat things over and over. Like, I don't know, map M. This is an abstraction which keeps giving you things. Like, you know, it's like this thing where the answer is always traversed to any of your problems. And you also have monad transformers as well, which means yeah. you can combine those monads together, and then you get a, the power of both of them, and yeah. then keep going yeah. and growing. Yeah. And you can think of effects, and at the end of the day, they are not monad, but they ha- they they end up being a monad, which has you know it's not monad transformer, it's a different thing. But but this idea of sequencing stuff appears in so many places that I think they were v- very good at recognizing this and and. And saying, well, we're gonna make this part of the language because that means, for example, you know, uh, you look going back to Kotlin or, or C sharp, they have this special question mark dot operator, which is like the flat map, uh, sorry, the 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 bind uh, for for your for your uh, maybe type. And and they have this specific one for this. Or you go and you go to JavaScript and they have a special syntax for promises. They have this async await. But that's also flat map for for <laughs> promises. So so I'm I'm always I always amazed by so, how somebody look at all of that and so oh this is all the same thing. All if same, we exactly. have the do notation, we have an all notation for all these specific cases in C sharp in JavaScript and so on. Uh, so so I don't know. It's 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 so so great that it works and. And of course, uh, you know, once you see this, if you recognize this and learn to work with this, that means that a lot of problems which were hard, and I think a lot of problems that we do in software, it's essentially, oh, I have a list of optional things and I need to apply an operation which works asynchronously. This is, you know, it's a lot of boilerplate code unless you figure out, wait, my list of optionals is traversable and my thing I want to do is A to IOB. So I have a traversable thing and a thing which has side effects. Oh, my answer is now traverse, you know, just by, yeah. by, by, by looking at those things. And this is, imagine writing a for loop to do this. <laughs> I, it's it and and and, and sync, I don't know, asynchronously or whatever. So, so that's that's why I think that. Having this toolbox gives you give you thing because it makes some of the annoying parts of programming into well one higher order function. That yeah, instead of like solving the same things over and over again and you know like it's error prone and whatever, you're just solving it once and a lot falls from there, yeah. right? Like actually a lot behaves like that. And I think the the, the, the one key idea is that more than we think, more are effects than we think, right? Like monads are about effects, about modeling algebraic effects, I believe. So like, actually, 
a lot more affects a lot more than we expect right i think that's that's <laughs> there. yeah the intuition for effect is is again something which could be so many things together i, I for example like the 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 one thing which i re- pretty like if you look at, at there is this library in a scala called cats and they also model monads and applicatives they have this interesting idea, which is what they call uh, the parallel. They have a type like called parallel, and that and that's uh, this relates a monad thing and an applicative thing. Uh, in that the monadic thing is like the sequential version of an effect, and the applicative is the parallel version. For example, you have it uh, if you have uh, so in in their library they have either, which is like fail first. And you have validation and, and validation, which we also have it in Haskell in validated data type or something like this. It's one of those things where if you have several errors, you combine the errors. So you cannot have a monad instance because monad instance drops something, uh, but you could have an applicative instance which combines the errors. And there is this interesting relation between either and validated. You know, one is the sequential version of the other, or one is the parallel version of the other. And this ha- and they have the in their in the library for what they call IO and par IO, which in Haskell would be something like IO and async from the async library. Like if you have an IO thing, you can turn it into an async and then things will uh, create threads in parallel. Or if you need to do something sequentially in otherwise parallel computation, you have to go back to IO. So you have this relation to, and I think that that's also a pretty interesting combination because it shows you, you know, I, I, for many people, applicative is just like a super class of monad, which gives you these nice, fancy operators with the stars and dollars, and it's all <laughs> symbols. Uh, but actually, they they kind of uh, show you the power of ha- having an applicative without being a monad in this parallel type class. I don't know what. Uh, so yeah, and 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 this was coming because of these effect things, and uh, this is I think an interesting idea of saying there are effects, and some effects can be sequential or parallel. In different ways, like like validation is one of those things. Uh, like IO is another thing. They have more examples of of this kind of two the same effect, but look through different glasses. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And I think you you actually nowadays you're working more on seeing how these things come together in different languages, right? Like I mean, you used to work on Haskell, but now you're working. You said Scala and Kotlin. Yeah, so so I, I uh, so the company where I work on uh, forty seven degrees, they they uh, do uh, consultancy, and I'm I'm mostly working on internal projects, uh, but they mostly use uh, Scala and and Kotlin nowadays. So, so they know like all the people around me just know too much about the JBM, like all the tiny bits. Wow. Like this will overflow your stack. What is that? We don't have an Haskell. <laughs> okay, now I have to learn about the stacks, but whatever. Uh, uh, and it's interesting because because uh, they are all very uh, you know, they all like functional programming. Like if like if you if you go to our website and you go to the blog, everything is about functional programming. But of course, it's, a, it's of a slight different thing because it needs to uh, talk to Java things. And also, these languages, well, Scala is super powerful, but Kotlin, for example, doesn't allow you to have the notion of monad because it doesn't have the, it doesn't have, well, higher kind of types, like the, the ability to talk about M of something. But they still follow the same patterns, which which I find quite interesting. So I'm 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 learning a lot about how to bring uh, this thing, and, and that's more or less what we were talking about. So so things keep coming to to these languages, and you can see that they are coming, and and, and that's actually one of the biggest surprises for me that that I uh, that I started uh, you know like helping some of my colleagues with some things, and I ended up like going full vested in Kotlin because I could just express everything I used to do in Haskell. But in Kotlin, because I have ADTs, again, they call it differently, but they are ADTs. They have higher order functions. They have uh, flat maps for for these things, even if they don't say this. And, and, you know, my colleagues have even built this library called Arrow, which is every functional um, nicety you are missing in Kotlin. They have 
implementing it so so it's it's kind of kind of interesting to see it how i can you know i always thought if i ever want to apply all of these i will have to go to one of these very few companies using haskell and it turns out that i can actually use the same ideas just with a bit of different syntax. So I actually need to use braces nowadays, which is not so bad <laughs> given my my fights with the layout syntax. I mean, I'm, again, I, I, might, I must be the only Haskeller which doesn't use folds and loves braces because, oh my God, layout syntax is, it always bites, it always bites me. Like... No, but I think I think these ideas that are coming. So yeah, I see I see functional programming languages as a big, I want to say a big laboratory, a big experimentation where we can try all the cool things that we want. We don't care that much about usability, especially in the old days, like when, and let's say Miranda was born. Like it was a big functional programming back then, right? Like, oh maybe maybe Miranda is not the best example, but anyways. Yeah, I, I just I just broke my own argument, but <laughs> no, but you can you can see like like uh, I don't know. For example, pattern matching is this thing where, where where I think it's good that it's now coming because now it's been refined and we know what works and what doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, exactly. People experimenting exactly. in F sharp. So, okay, for example, F sharp maybe went a bit too far and they have very weird patterns you can have <laughs> uh, like this pattern where you can pattern match. I think they have in Scala too, like in the tail of the list but you pattern match in a really? different way or something like wow. this it's, it's kind of complicated and i think it, i don't i cannot i think that might go too far but right but yeah uh but that's what my, my point my original point was that we have all these nice different ideas that we're not applying in an imperative language in the regular ways and then we show that no it's actually pretty usable and pretty cool we can do very cool stuff with it look at haskell look at all the cool stuff we can make with haskell and look at how how simple these ideas can be expressed with monads, with maps, with flat maps, with folds, right? And then these other languages are like, oh, actually, that, that's actually pretty cool. Let's bring it. Let's bring it to our language. People started actually asking. The community is like, why don't we have this? Let's, <laughs> let's make this work, right? Like, this is actually going to be really nice to Java. This is going to be really nice to Kotlin, right? And that's, that's very powerful. That's very good. So that this, this is what you're saying, that you can actually do this functional style programming. I actually think it's kind of like pretty new, from maybe the last few decades. <laughs> How old is, is Kotlin, for example? It's yeah, Kotlin oh is maybe God. ten years old or something like this. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, and you have Swift, but uh, that it's also pretty new. So so, but yeah, new languages nowadays have it. Like like you don't really. If you don't have it, then you are you are uh... behind. Yeah, you're not yeah, cool. You're, you're not with the cool kids anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot come with us in the during lunch. You cannot eat with us. Go away. <laughs> so what else? What other? You, you said that in, in forty five in, in in forty seven degrees. Yeah, for, sorry about that. So you said that in forty seven degrees, you were you you do a lot of consulting. What what sort of projects do you guys look into? What are why would a company come and 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 hire forty seven degrees? I said I was I'm 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 also on a, a kind of a different. Thing. I don't I don't go with clients directly, so I'm working uh -huh. on internal projects for the company. Oh, okay. so, you know things which eventually will make the life of my colleagues better, hopefully. And I do training, so I uh, so one of the things, uh, for example, that a lot of people come to forty seven degrees is well, uh, they are learning Kotlin and and they want. And they want to know how you can approach things in this other functional way to learn. So, you know, ah, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, you know, a colleague of mine is very good at training this kind of, uh, at, at, at being a trainer on this. And a company comes and, well, sometimes we do it public. Uh, like, uh, I, I've done uh, a few courses in Haskell, like, uh, you know, from zero to to somehow being able to even use monotransformers in one week or something like this. And... So yeah, I I think uh, like most of the people approaching us already have uh, like a taste of the idea that functional programming can help them uh, somehow. It's it's a good way to architect their, their things. So so a lot of the of the of the people uh, uh, that that uh, 
company works with that are, are using Scala. And I think Scala, it's also, they have a, a part of the Scala community is very into pure functional programming. You have all these libraries from what it's called this type level organization, which is like cats and cats that's for category theory. So they have functors and monads and so on. So they want to uh, use this kind of thing. So, so uh, you know, as a consultancy, you can help them, uh, well, by either uh, training them or showing them or being in as part of their team how to how to uh, you know leverage this kind of thing. So it's 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 uh, yeah. So it's like if if you I think most people come as I said already have the, the idea that functional programming ha- can help them, but sometimes it's also hard if you don't have an expert. To you know, imagine True. you have a team of engineers and you want to use this, this, uh, these techniques and you want to use these libraries because they give you a nicer way. Of, at the end of the day, it's, it's always the same. It's a faster way to write software. Some most of the time, you need an expert to come and tell you, well, that's how you use it. You are doing it wrong. That you review your code. Oh, you should. You know, I don't know. From small things like, oh, you are using flat map, but you can do it with map or with a or with a do notation here. Why don't you try this or that to bigger things is the kind of things which, so it's, it's, I mean, that, that's also what I see like functional programming is kind of, uh, you know, uh, taking over the world because yes. I see all these companies which literally want to do functional programming uh, <laughs> in one way or another. <laughs> we don't care what we're going to do with it. Let's just, I want to do functional programming and you guys are going to help us. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean. Of course, the, the, like there are several places where this this uh, actually helps you a lot. So, so in the company, for example, there is also a lot of uh, people uh, which have a lot of knowledge about microservices. And if you think about the microservice architecture, that's actually pretty great for functional programming because we have these self-contained components which cannot talk to other people. So it's not like it's not like you shouldn't use mutable state is that you don't have it because your your other microservices in other part of the network so you really it's it's a really good place to actually have a, like a very functional core where everything is pure plus a bunch of adapters to talk to things which is actually like if you think of haskell as like type classes like things to, for serialization and so on that works so well it's i think people call it hexagonal architecture these these days but it's like you look at it and it's it's literally like put pure functions in your center put a bunch of ios with type classes around it and deploy it as a microservice that's wow. like that's and wow. you cannot get more functional than this so, right so it actually, seems like this is a problem created to be solved by functional programming yeah yeah, yeah. so people may also i don't know i don't know i mean as I said, I don't know how clients come to the company, but they might <laughs> actually come to help with microservice architecture. And wow, it turns out that you are doing functional programming. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's really nice. That's that's amazing. I think we are starting to running out of of our time. Yeah, I have ten more minutes or so. Uh, is there anything in particular would you like to bring up that we didn't have the opportunity to touch in the episode? One thing is that now it's it's been uh, pretty nice for me to actually have a look outside. I was uh, I, I would actually suggest people to 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 do this more often. I was I was pretty excited in the last years. Like I I uh, I was doing Haskell most of my time, and suddenly I found about the Scala and Elixir, which is also like a great. It's also like another great language. People want to look how. Functional programming actually helps you. It's like if you do functional programming, you can actually get incredible performance in concurrent system. And 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 Elixir is the proof of that. So it's like it's not just useful on on the conceptual level. It's actually gives you a performance boost uh, to do this. Uh, but I'm still like uh, invested in the community. So I recently uh, started. Uh, uh, a podcast with with uh, other people from the community is called the Haskell Interlude, like a, a, a wordplay with the Prelude, and oh, that's you know, yeah, part of smart. this. No, the you know you might have heard about the Haskell Foundation, which is this new right. foundation which is trying to push for more Haskell adoption. So it was part of like the let's say the 
how you how do you say outreach i was going to say marketing but i think it's the, the, the nice word yeah. is outreach <laughs> uh, good job it's a, it's like <laughs> you see i'm learning uh, <laughs> uh, we are bringing it it did podcast and and we essentially talk to people uh which which uh uh are well known in the community or uh, actually we we try to look for people which are uh do you find people which nobody knows about and suddenly they have like uh you you find out that they have this incredible piece of software in an open source repository it's like please tell me about this. Uh, I want to know, like, how are you doing, I don't know, machine learning in Haskell? How can, how can you do that? What, uh, things like that. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and apart from that, well, you know, I've, I've been interested with, with for quite some time on people using this kind of more functional things. I've written a couple of books uh, about, about uh, Haskell uh, back in the day when I didn't have two kids and I had time. <laughs> now, now all my time is devoted for them to grow enough so I can teach them about monads. But you know they are a bit too small How now. Are they? Yeah, they're six and two, I think. Oh uh, yeah, they're ch- they're a little too young. Maybe wait yeah, two yeah, more it's... years for the six-year-old, yes. then he can learn some monads. Yeah. <laughs> They need to be exposed to promises and, and options, you know, so they can generalize from the facts. Oh, uh, that's, oh that's yeah, you're, yeah, good job. You're actually a good, a pretty good teacher, you know, like building from small steps and from the easiest to the more complex things. Yeah, I think I think I got it from somewhere. I think it, if uh, you know, if you see nowadays, everybody who explained Monat explained in this kind of from the concrete to the abstract, starting from a few examples, and I found that actually this actually works. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and 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 soon, actually, speaking about monads, uh, so I, I I'm gonna re I'm working on a second edition of the book of monads, which is this book I wrote about monads uh, with a, with a fancy new cover and all of that, and hopefully in a nicer way. So so. Just saying, this this will this will happen. So if people are interested on, on monads. Uh, this is called check the book it of monads. It's about monads. I'm, check I'm, it out, guys. Yeah. So make sure to check out his books on the book of monads and also a real world guide to programming is his other book. Yeah, it's called Practical oh. Haskell, I think. The the what? it's called. Uh, yeah, I think that was the subtitle or something like this. Oh, I've got the subtitle of your book. I'm yeah. so sorry. Let me do this again. So, hey guys, make sure to check out his two books, The Book of Monads and The oh Practical Haskell. I know, I know, I know it's hard because people don't associate Haskell with practical, but believe me, this that book tells you about how you write web services and stuff like that. And Monad Transformers, because you always end up using Monad Transformers for everything. There you go. There you go. You're gonna learn everything you need about Haskell if you thought this episode was Anyhow, interesting. If you want to start hacking on the GHC, that's the way the way to start. You you read the book and you're gonna be ready to go, right? Uh, yeah, of <laughs> course, of course. Yes, yes. You might also need to check, uh, you know, uh, the some other people who know about this. But they are, they are actually nowadays. It's it's all. I want to say that that the GHC team is doing a great job on on bringing people up to speed. Like nowadays, yeah. there are a few people who devote a lot of time pair programming with people who are starting in GHC, which would have uh, been awesome when I started. Is it, is, it, is it maintained by Microsoft Research? Nowadays? No, no, it's it's like a separate thing. Oh so, yeah, the, the own Haskell Foundation. Yeah, so Haskell Foundation is also right. different. So GHC is like its own team, okay. and there is oh like a God. few people maintaining them, like a core team. Uh, of course, I mean, uh, Microsoft Research was paying the salary of 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 Simon Payton Jones, and and like there are other consultants like WellType and Twig are paying salaries of other people working part time. So you could say that it's like a community. Uh, thing so there of course there's people at the end of the day working full time there but but as I said, nowadays like if you want to know about how it works i would say like richard eisenberg has a series of videos like he's literally just opening the gc code base and fixing a oh. bug so uh yeah Man. yeah i'm uh, gonna check. put that in the link of the description of the podcast to make sure that yeah. everyone can check that out i'm actually yeah that's that's really cool stuff um 
we're running out of time now. I'm thank you so much for for coming and having this amazing conversation with me. It was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, it was it was bad. And we didn't even talk too much about impredictability and so on. So so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. I sure learned a lot with Alejandro. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter at Trupel, T-R-U-P-I-L-L. Also, I want to apologize for taking so long for posting this other episode. I was caught up in work submitting my first, first author paper. Hooray! And before that, I was having an amazing vacation in Brazil, visiting family, friends, making sure I take care of my mental health and whatnot. And I urge you, my dear listener, to also not forget taking good care of your mental health, okay? Sometimes it's really easy to get all caught up in work and lose perspective of what really matters. Anyways, enough of this. Let's wrap this up. If you guys have any questions or comments, feel free to post them in our website, www.typetheoryforall.com. I also have a brand new Twitter just for this show. Make sure to follow at TT for all so you don't lose any news about the upcoming episodes and i think that's it for today stay safe and i'll see you next time